faithful listeners and new listeners to the Force of Nature podcast. I'm Rubine Stevenson, and today I'm speaking with a well. She, if you meet Melina, there is no way you could miss her in a room. She is a woman that just exudes confidence and intelligence and has a brightness of spirit around her. Um, I met her at a a speaking gig I did for PwC where we were talking about imposter syndrome and um, seeing someone like Melina who is a partner uh, stand up in front of the crowd of young women and share her story around imposter syndrome was it was powerful Uh, and afterwards I as I do shimmied up to her and asked if she'd like to join me for a chat and she kindly invited me up um, to the PwC offices which were beautiful and we had a wonderful talk. Uh, Melina is a massive animal lover and she talks about her animal family her fur family and also is um, an active mum of three as well. She has done so much in her career and um, around her self-discovery. I really enjoyed making this episode. Uh, I'm going to post a lot of the photos to do with uh, what we talked about as well. So do make sure you check out our Instagram, which is at Oi Ahoy Hoy. And we're also on Facebook uh, under the same tag. So I'll leave you to enjoy the wonderful chat that was uh, Melina Sir and me on The Force of Nature. Well, hello. Thank you for hosting us today on mm. level 19. I feel like I'm in the clouds. It is a beautiful environment and thank you for the opportunity, Rubin. I'm very <laughs> excited to be speaking with you today, even though we've had lots of conversations beforehand. I feel like we cheated because we just spent like 40 minutes with a lovely glass of wine and deep conversation and then I was like, oh, I should have hit record. That's right. I've still got plenty more, um, plenty <laughs> more talking to do. I don't think we're going to run out of conversation. Um, Melina, we met at a. Uh, I did a little talk for you and your team a few weeks ago, and we clicked, didn't we? Certainly did. There was, a, there was. Um, it's often the people. I think. I. Oh, there's some energy. It was so good. Yeah, and I really enjoyed what you shared with everyone. I thought that's a brave, fabulous woman. Let's get her on the podcast. So here we are. Um, we're going to talk a lot about your background and what you do, using my little rabbit ears, but shall we start with um, troublemaking? Yes. Well, I'm an only child, so mm-hmm. when you're an only child, you get blamed for everything by your parents. So I think I um, pretty much started life getting into trouble for everything, even if it was something that I didn't do. I was always blamed for it. Um, well, you had no one else. Well, I had no one else. And mm. uh, and I did – I was fortunate my parents loved animals and so I grew up with lots of cats and, and dogs around the home and I remember you always dressing up one of the cats in a doll outfit <laughs> and putting her in my pram <laughs> and wheeling her around the garden. So I was constantly getting in trouble for that from my mum. <laughs> Was that, was that not something you were supposed to be doing? Leave well, apparently not, alone. but the cat didn't seem to mind. And where, uh, was, where was home? Where, was, where were you and all the animals? So I am um, born and bred in Paran. Oh, my goodness. Uh, which back in the day um, was not one of the greatest places to live. It was, uh, if anyone's uh, read Chopper Reed's books, he talks about chopping the toes off drug dealers in the basement of a few Paran hotels. So it certainly wasn't a, de- 
as a desirable place as it is today. But look, it's a place that's home to me. It's where my parents are. It's where um, I still live in the same street where I grew up. Like uh, a good Greek girl, I moved out (laughs) of home and moved next door. And then 25 years later, moved moved next door to next door, which was the even bigger house. So still very close to mum and dad. And, you know, living in a community that I've grown up with... um, and it's beautiful. So, yeah. and all my friends from primary school and high school are still there. So, it's home to it's me. Home. Do you walk down the street and you have to kind of, if you're trying to get somewhere, you have to keep your head down? Because I imagine everyone knows who you are. They do. Yeah. Um, and being on the local council yeah. for 20 years and being the mayor four <laughs> times doesn't help. Um, so someone's always stopping me for something. And you're quite right. I've tried the, the sunglasses and the head down, but yeah. people still recognise me. Are. I think they just see my hair and it's sort of my distinctive feature. And um, Oh, it's you. It's you. Yeah, like, so. I can see you coming a mile away. I love that. Um, I When I was living in Wellington, it was one of the things I loved is we were a small town and I couldn't we, you couldn't really go too far with that. But whenever you were trying to get somewhere in a hurry, it was always like, oh, just don't make eye contact because if you look up, you're going to see, you know. But that's community, really. It is. And my yeah. dad hasn't been well lately and mm. um, it was so lovely that everyone would stop me um, and just say, how's your dad going? You know, I'm going to drop in and see him. And, you know, and I thought that's really nice. These are people that genuinely care about my dad they've known him for 40 50 years and you know they're asking after him so and that that I think is sometimes not valued as how powerful it really Mm. is Um, and we're planning a street party for Christmas this year first time ever and I'm really excited about it because I'm going to get to meet some new people that have moved into the street Mm. and even build a bigger and better community than we already have because that's what we were talking about a bit before is in this age of digital connection and everything, the human-to-human contact and finding people and just connecting in ways that I sort of now described as old school but as so fundamentally human. So important. It is, and it's really daunting. We think the majority of um, or the average age in, in Stonington, the city where I live in and represent a local government level, the average age is like 32. Wow. And the majority of these people are living alone. And yet they're so connected, yet they're so lonely. Mm. And it's really sad. And and when we look at infrastructure developments, and we're doing one at the moment, a $72 million development on an old car park, we're turning into a public square and Mm. putting the car park underground. We've consciously created community spaces Spaces. where people can come together, even come and sit on grass or sit on steps with free Wi-Fi. We're going to have movies there. We've um, put in cafes. Amazing. Just to bring people out. And even if they're not with somebody, they're still with other, other people. people around. Correct. Because I think it's, yeah, it, it can be, the world can be an alienating place, um, particularly mm. um, people of, you know, are taking longer to maybe get into relationships. Relationships aren't long lasting a lifetime like they used to. Um, and it can get quite lonely. So it's, I think it's really important to keep our community connected and out and about. And I'm seeing it with more and more developments and the consideration that's now going into like the spaces that need to be created in and around and on top of the living space, which is actually actually another living space, which is where we actually interact with other humans. If you're, yeah, I think it's so important. I love watching people going to dog parks and connecting. 
Look, that's that's so true. I've got two two dogs who um, have a bit of a cult following because they're both um, very. Oh, give them a shout out. What's different. their Instagram handle? Uh, I think it's Bodie and Millie. That's my dog walker <laughs> who's created that because I don't have time for Instagram. Oh, no, but um, it's Bodie B O D H I and Millie M I L I E. So Bodie is a Bernese Mountain dog oh, who beautiful. is just an absolute divine animal and. Uh, you know, and he literally walks down the street and stops people because he just thinks – everyone thinks he's gorgeous and he expects a pat. So yeah. it's a bit awkward for people who are terrified of dogs <laughs> or just, uh, you know, are going somewhere. Um, and Millie is a miniature miniature. She's a very short-legged, um, long-haired dash hound. Um, so you together, get two yeah, more different <laughs> animals. I love it. Um, so she's the boss. And it's quite funny, so they, um, because I spend a lot of time at work and I feel terribly guilty, um, they have a dog walker who's the one that set up the Instagram page and is as in love with them as I am. So we joke she's the foster mum. Um, And she takes them to the park twice a day and, you know, Millie will be sort of pottering along and she's this gorgeous little thing and everyone stops down to pat her and then Bodie just sideswipes them because all of a sudden I've got to have attention. So there's (laughs) been a few casualties but um, they... How much does the Bernie's... Wait, do you know? Well, he's only 10 months and we're at 45 kilos. Oh, so, yeah, and he's probably got probably another 12 to 14 months of growing wow. to do. Yeah. yeah. Have you had a dog that big before? I have actually. I um when I was in my 20s, I got two big Belgian shepherds. Oh, one and wow. the, the average size is meant to be about 45 kilos with two males and one of them was 65 kilos and the other one was 45 kilos. Gorgeous long hair, really mm. striking animals. Um, so they were my life for yeah. 16 years. And um, and then I had children and the house got too small for two big dogs. So I sort of resorted to cats. Mm. But I, I, loving big animals, I ended up with Maine Coons, which are the big <laughs> American barn cats. And some people know them and just are obsessed by them. Um, some people don't. But for those that are interested, mm. look up Maine. It's M-A-I-N-E, Coons. C-O-O-N-S, they're absolutely, they're huge. Um, one of my cats, um, he's about 10 kilos, but his son's 15 and um, you get them between 10 and 15 kilos. Beautiful, but beautiful. very docile. It's so funny because uh, Loz, who's part of my Ahoy Hoy crew, she has a mancoon and she took um, hoops to um, a cat show and she won Best in Show, first time ever presenting and she, they're just stunningly beautiful. Yeah. But they're exactly. big. You, you and they love, are big. Like, yeah. Okay, I love it. They are very big. In fact, one of them is persistently wants to sit on my lap when I'm doing my emails. And then when I have to stand up, my legs are numb. Yeah, because of the weight. weight. It's like having a child on your lap for that amount of time. This is awesome. We have to put photos. I think I have to put photos up on Instagram of all the animals. This is because there's a lot of animal fans on, on, the, on the old Insta. Um, you talked about your 20s. T- tell us a little bit about your, you know, your. Pref- what did you do in your early twenties? Did you go to uni? I did. Yeah. Um, I'm someone who had a job as soon as I could get one. So at 14 years and nine months, I walked into the local supermarket and got a job as a checkout chick, mm-hmm. and then got promoted to the deli, which was of a, sort of a cool place to be yeah. in those days. <laughs> um, and then, um, you know. Ended up getting a job at Optus when they first started as the telecommunications um, company in Australia. Mm. So that was another cool place to work because everyone wanted to get a job there. Although I, I did debt collecting, a job oh. that I really enjoyed, believe it or not. We have such similar funny things because I started life at the Ministry of Justice collecting unpaid fines. Yeah. 
And so it, it is fun in the stories that, you know. The stories. Great, yeah. great stories. And, and I was so good at collecting debts that I became their sort of key, what they called a skip tracer. So um, people who <laughs> skip town, <Yeah>. hence the <laughs> skip, um, um, I had to trace them, hence, you know, the tracing bit. So find out where they'd gone. Oh, my God, you're a detective. So it was really easy to find them because people seem to forget that when people apply for a mobile phone account, they've got to give their date of birth. So the logical thing I would do is I'd go through their phone bills and look who they called on their birthday and chances are I mean it's something so simple that but so no one thought about it <gasps> um no, like who do you call on your birthday well it's going to be someone in the family and look it was amazing how I tracked people down and I remember <laughs> I remember oh tracking that down so um, a guy with his mistress in <gasps> the Swiss Alps and look he paid that bill so quickly because he was absolutely terrified that I was going to ring his wife and tell him where oh, he was oh yeah I'll put that on my credit card right up Correct. So, um, but look, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, uh, when I joined there, it was with a whole group of people who were at the same stage of their lives. Mm. So I built a lot of yeah. awesome friendships that I still have to this I day. I think that's really and common. I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. We were part of a call centre crew and we're still friends now. The people, like one of my best friends, I met her there. And so we've been friends for nearly 20 years from that call centre collecting unpaid clients. Yeah. We used to have so much fun with. Yeah, because you had to make it fun because you're sitting – it's a pretty – it can be a fully full-on job. Yeah, and look, you're spending, you know, eight to ten hours mm. a day with these people so um, you they can't help but build crew. a friendship. But um, I I was a serial – and I am a serial monogamist. I um, dated a guy from high school and we were together for six years so I spent my early 20s sort of building a home with him. Mm. Um, we had our two dogs together, you know, we're like the happy family and I was um, finishing my uni degree and back then it was called information management, which oh, shows my wow. age. No. Now they call it information systems. So that, um, how many women were doing that back then? Not many. No. So I was, uh, I was very then. That's much really rude, back no. then. <laughs> Strike that from the record. But Sorry. it's true. Look, when I was um, – oh, it was not the done thing for women to get involved in no. IT. Um, but I just had this love of – it was just – I just loved the challenge of it, the fact that yeah. it was so unique. And I, I never liked things that everybody else did. No, I either. always wanted yeah. – I don't know, something about me. I always wanted to be different. So if it wasn't popular, I wanted to do it. Yep. And, um, you know, so I was studying. I had um, my job at the supermarket. Uh, I got a job at the local pran market running a cafe there. Um, and then I got a job on Friday nights um, working in a restaurant and then on the weekends in a reception centre. And I have to say, working in a reception centre is one of the funniest jobs anyone can mm. ever own. The things that go on at weddings are just... And I still tell the same stories to these day about um, some of the funny things I saw there. But... You know, it was a really busy, exciting time. Mm. Um, and, then and, and the energy we had back then to be incredible. able to do yeah. study, job. Go out all night. Social <laughs> and then get up and do it all again. Um, That's I assuming you went to bed. Yeah. There were some oh, nights yeah. that, um, you, you know, didn't. I was out all night. Yeah. The sun came up and I went to work. Oh, better go to work now. How did we do that? Amazing. Yeah. I suppose we did it when we had children. You know, we didn't exactly get a lot of sleep, but... No, it was a good time and it was a time when, um, you know, I was completely and totally in love with this guy that I'd been dating from high school and, and then all of a sudden we broke up. I was like, mm. oh my gosh. How old were you then? I was uh, 22. Wow. And we'd been together for six years and, you know, I remember standing in my lounge room thinking, who am I? Because mm. I'd spent all of my formative, well, a good portion mm. of my formative years with him, looking after somebody else mm. and caring about somebody else that I'd sort of forgotten myself 
and I, I, I just I had to really do a lot of soul searching and go back to who am I and, you know, what is important to me and what makes me happy and what are my values and so forth because I'd lost them along the way and I promised myself I would never, ever do that again mm. and certainly not for a guy. Mm. So, you, you, know, you managed it. to get there at 22. Mm. I got there at like 30-something, same moment, but it took a lot longer. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Oh, and so what happened then? Well, you know, I started on a journey where I did a lot of self-reflection and I took a bit more more risks and I had a little bit more courage because I sort of believed in myself mm. a bit more and had the time to build a relationship, I guess, with myself and not, you know, always worrying about somebody else. So it was a really great growth part mm. of my life and I got back to, you know, to who I was and, yeah, I took those risks that sort of really led me down a, a great path for um, for career and sort of other choices in my life. Okay, let's just carry on with that then. So what, what would you define as the risks that you took at that point? I consistently stepped outside of my comfort zone. Mm. Um, I took on jobs that my logical brain said, Melanie, you can't do that. You can't yeah. do that. You know, who are you thinking? Who do you think you are? Yeah. Like, seriously. Yeah. But I just kept – I just made myself go and do it. So where were you – like, and was this working – where were you working then? So I ended up um, getting a job at Optus mm. um, while I was finishing my uni degree and like 1,200 people applied for 24 positions. Yeah. And I thought, I'm not going to get this job, but hey, look, you know what? I'm going to go to the interview because yeah. it's good experience. Yeah, you I'll can learn, learn from something. all the things I'm going to do wrong and then the next interview I do, maybe I don't do as many of them wrong again. And I got the job. Of course you did. You know what you just described though? The imposter syndrome. No. Oh. not Well, a little bit, but your growth mindset. Because you went into it going, I'll learn something. Not, yeah. not. That's a good point, actually. Yeah. Because yeah. this is what I'm noticing with a lot of the women I speak to is they sometimes realise it and sometimes they don't. The way you frame that opportunity is, I'll learn something from this. Not necessarily, I'm going to get it. Mm. At least if I do or I don't, whatever. At least I've learned something along the way. One thing, and look, whether it's just a delusional belief on my behalf, but one thing that's always served me well in life, even when shit happens, mm. I say to myself, well, Melina, what's the lesson you can take out of mm. that? Or that's the universe mm. teaching you something. Mm. Look at what it is and learn from it. Mm. And so, you know, maybe that's what keeps me sane. Sometimes it doesn't work, but that's – I sort of take – I go with the punches in that regard. Yeah. And it, it has it's, – it's a comforting thought to have at the time and I've just trained myself to think that way. I think it's super important. It's a big realisation I've had over the last few years as well as I keep thinking, why does all this stuff keep happening? I'm like, because it's life. And then the trick is to recognise that it's just going to keep coming and d differing levels of shit that's going to come. That's right. There's and no such thing as a perfect life. But you get the choice of how to react and what you do with it. So you can't help necessarily how you feel, but you can absolutely decide what you do with those feelings. Exactly right. Mm. You know, um, and and oh, it is so it cool. is in it is in your control. Um, and when you know I was at Optus, as I said, I started off on the phones doing debt collecting, and then somewhere along the way, someone found out that I was doing IT, and, and they said, "Oh, we're putting in a new system, and we need someone to help test it." And I went, "Oh, <laughs> yeah, well, I'd love to do that." Yeah. I'm like, and this was another promotion, um, and you know, lo and behold, it sort of evolved. Ella all of a sudden, I became sort of the IT expert in the Melbourne office because we were a Sydney-based company, and love I was it. building um, 
what they call robots these days, which I laugh about because I was writing those things 25 years ago. Screen people, scrapers. People don't know, yeah, like, how circular some of it is. Yeah. And I was in a meeting the other day and they were describing that and I was like, we, we were doing that in the 90s, Steve. What are you talking about? Like, it's not that new a concept no. at all. Yeah. Someone's just cottoned on now. Yeah. But I was writing screen scraping code um, back then. And I and it was code that I didn't learn at uni. It was code that I'd sneak out at lunchtime in the Optus building. There was a bookshop in the basement. And um, I was literally reading the code and working it out and then running upstairs and writing it and testing it because I didn't have any money, so I couldn't afford to buy the book. Um, and I just worked it out. And I had so much overtime because I was able to write code that all these different departments in Optus got a huge amount of benefit from. So I just kept progressing and until I ended up sort of building a system for their corporate and government, government area that um, only I knew how to look after it. Um, and... You know, I sort of became, and then they doubled my salary because I became so. You were so priceless. valuable if you took off. It was off. just like I couldn't believe it. It just, I sort of kept falling into these these roles because I kept going. Yep, I'll I'll do that. I'll give it a go. Um, and I was fortunate. And then you, know, you my, weren't fortunate. Well, that's how I see it. No, sorry. So I see you as being this constant curious, like. Um, adventurer who just kept going until you solved it and that's not fortune I, I get on this thing a lot about being yeah. lucky no you get choice and then you decide what to do with it or you get creative like thinking about how to call people on your birthday that's not a common thought like that's some really interesting thinking I love yeah, it yeah see no. I look at that and go but that's so obvious so why obvious. don't other people see it but yeah then um, my boss at, at Optus left and joined IBM and then rang me up and said you need to oh, join this that's company. How you got and that's to how IBM. I got into IBM. And, I was like, and that was a dream for me. Like, IBM, are you serious? A job yeah. at IBM? I'm not that smart. What are they going to do with me? And, you know, again, yeah, this is this negative yeah. self-talk that we're so good at. Yeah, we're um, amazing at it. You know, and, and um, yeah, I got the job and, you know, and again, it's like... So what was the first role that you had at IBM? Do you remember? It's a consultant. Yeah, it's that generic that term, term where so we're just going to throw you at any project, even though you don't have the skills to deliver it, you'll work it out. And and that's what it was. Look, you know, going in there and doing the really tough gigs where you just sink to the bottom mm. and you just go, no, I'm going to work this out. And it's to me it's common sense, but yeah. apparently it's not that common. Some people go, I just couldn't do what you do. But nah. I, I get really stressed, don't get me wrong, no. um, but I – then the, the rewards that go with being successful and mm. achieving that is, is really, really pleasing. So you've put things in place though, and we'll get to this a little bit later, but as you recognise, oh, this might not be the healthiest reaction to the pressure, I might put some other things in place so that I can keep doing the things I love but without the mental <laughs> torment that kind of comes with it. We'll get into that. So IBM, how long were you at IBM for? Nearly 20 years. Wow. Mm. Okay, so oh, there's such a – I want to unpack all of that, but I don't think we can. Um, what were some of the standout moments at well, one of the more interesting parts of IBM? That um, I, I got to do such a variety of different projects, which was really, really exciting. So uh, just keeping abreast of – you know, just even updating my LinkedIn profile was really hard because it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot I did that. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, you know, no. it's like you just – you just don't appreciate it because you're so deep into it. You don't rise above to look and go, wow, I achieved that. But um, I guess for me, one thing I was really proud of was um, the National Broadband Network. I worked on the tender for that for mm -hmm. IBM, um, which at the time, the decision as to whether 
the government was going to proceed with it came down to whether Labor or Liberal won the election. Mm. So I'd, I was one of the key people working on this tender. I'd worked on it for seven months straight. The only day I took off was Christmas Day. Um, and I remember even then sitting down on the sofa and falling asleep. Like I was the most unsociable guest. But I was so exhausted. Um, and we won it. And then when we won it, because I'd worked so hard and knew it so intimately, uh, our management team said, are you happy to go in and negotiate the, the legal contract with um, MBN's lawyers? I'm like are, you, like, are you serious? I mean, I went in with a lawyer, but I went in negotiating on behalf of from the delivery perspective and that was like a 300-page document. I was so proud of it. And then I was the first IBMer on site wow. setting up the whole governance. I ran the program governance office and we had, you know, about 100 people working on it then. I had a, a number of junior people join me in the team um, and I watched them grow in their careers and then I got it to a state where I handed it over to them and I went off on my merry journey to other more important and bigger projects. But it was just so rewarding Gosh, to yeah, deliver that huge. and also to, to – I love seeing people grow in their careers. That's mm. really important to me. I had a grad that worked for me um, 20 years ago and now he's the head of Amazon um, in Seattle. So – like, you know, that's it's just that's so proud awesome. and we still stay in touch and I'm just so proud of him. Um, and, yeah, just – and my last project before I left IBM was I was working on a really, really difficult trouble project and I walked in there I had four people in my team and I grew the team to 80. Yeah. Um, and we just had such a, – on a, on a really tough project, we had such – good team rapport. Everyone used to laugh. It was someone's birthday. I made sure that we had a birthday cake for them. Our team meetings were almost like comedy shows were funny but but everyone was committed and we and had felt fun. felt safe, safe enough to felt joke. Felt safe enough to joke and we mm. all went off and, and worked really hard. You know, and, and sort of a couple of times a week I'd walk around the floor and, and buy everybody, spend about 100 bucks of my own money buying everybody their favourite chocolates from Hague's and it was just, yeah. just a great environment to be in. I used to, yeah, it's funny, um, again, leaders and role models that I really connect with too is I think we always end up, the generosity or spending the money, that's not part of the budget because that's just what you do. Hmm. You just do it. Yeah. You don't even no, think twice and, about and it. I love that. And even with yeah. my, my team here at PwC, you know, they're always being invited over to my place, you know, Aww. at my expense and, yeah. you know, and, and we just have a great time getting together Yeah. So outside of so work. So we'll, we'll go – so tell – how long have you been with PwC? So just over two years now. Yeah. And and what attracted you to coming to PwC? Because you could have gone and done your own thing. Look, I could have, and I I thought I'd stay at IBM till I retired. To yeah. be brutally honest, because again, going back to the serial monogamous thing, it's not just relationships; <laughs> it's, it's also, also employers. <laughs> you know, so six years at Optus, twenty years at IBM. Wow. Hopefully, you know, ten at, at PwC. Um, so I got approached by a recruiter mm-hmm. um, and at the time, timing was right. Mm. Uh, you know, I started to, again, look beyond sort of my comfort zone. Yeah. And IBM had changed a lot. A lot of people I'd worked with had left and, you know, and they were the people that sort of made me want to come to work every mm-hmm. day. They weren't there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I got talking to this recruiter and you know, he started telling me about the role of doing assurance here on major projects mm. and program assurance, I thought, that's exactly what I love to do. I love mm. to fix things. Mm. We like to figure it out. Figure it out and fix it and make – I love to see people be successful, um, you know, especially my clients. So uh, – and, you know, and taking a team of people along on that journey and watching them grow in their career. So it was a tick, tick, tick in so many areas. Mm. 
And, and also the level of client that you'll have access to through PwC. Correct. Versus going out on your own. I often say that to people is just remember that it's not that easy for, you know, you're not going to walk into tier one if you're going to kick off on your own. The brand is, is so, so powerful. powerful. Um, but that mm. also comes with, you know, its challenges mm. as well because we're such a trusted brand mm. in in the um, in society that we've got to deliver mm. the best for our clients. The standards are like Correct. high. So, high, yeah. you know, and as a partner, you try not to get too much into the detail. You mm. know, you rely on your team to do that. But when I've got to go and present to a board or an audit committee about our findings, I actually want to have been in the details so yeah. I can speak to them from the bottom of my heart hand on heart and yeah. tell them the truth because yeah. I've been there and I've seen it in that review. So so it's a lot of work but it, it's exhausting but it's very fulfilling yeah. and I love working here. Do you – can you explain what being a partner is to someone who hasn't worked in professional services management consultant? So being a partner, it's really about we're an owner of the business mm-hmm. – um, so it's a privately owned business. You know, there's shares owned by all the partners, mm. and so we are all in it together as mm-hmm. business owners. So we all look out for each other. We've got to understand what every part of the business does and look for opportunities, not only to build our own capabilities. So in mine, it's to build program assurance mm-hmm. in Victoria, but it's also to um, also look for opportunities for other parts of the firm to get mm. involved, and also to make sure that. We bring in the best people to join PwC. We invest in them and we keep them happy in their job. Mm. But, you know, I'm responsible for building a business under the PwC brand is Mm. probably the easiest way to do it. And my capability is in assurance on big projects. So that's where my focus is. Mm. And how many people on your team? Uh, we're up to 18 now. Wow, yeah, cool. Had, and you've uh, been here two years. Three, yeah. four when I got here. Wow. So, yeah, four. And did you get clients handed over to you? Have you built that up through... Some some we're brought in because mm. in for special our specialisation mm. on internal audit clients, but mm. we're also working on bringing in new clients that yeah, cool. um, may not necessarily have worked in our assurance space. Mm. So and that's obviously harder because they'll have existing relationships mm. and um, but the brand does does help. So but it, it's a lot of work and closing a deal can take you know yes. months and months and months. Yes. So we are we have won a number of new clients yeah. as well. So it's, it's been a, good. It's, a, it's the planter the the farmer. Planting, yeah. Uh, if there was one thing that you could tell your clients and you'd want them to know, what would it be? That we we do what we say. Mm. We do talk about, um, you know, our mission is to to build trust and you know um, make society a better better place. And that's a real driver, a genuine driver in this business. It's not just a slogan mm. that you know we use for marketing purposes. Our teams all go out and do impact days where they go and do volunteering work. Um, We also do a lot of pro bono work uh, for companies and also sit on boards of not-for-profits. And just generally for clients, you know, that are are paying us for our services, the passion and the investment that we all put in to success, like quality is so important to us and that's a really big driver. Mm. But we really love making a difference to Mm. society and one of my other roles which was a real honour to take on was a client lead partner for the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning. Oh wow, 
when they're um, doing their massive. So that the, you know, I say to people, you know, yeah. Victoria used to be the the most um, for seven years in a row the most popular, the best place to live in the world. We've dropped to second, unfortunately, but we're working on getting back to number one. And Delp is the reason yeah. for that. So they look after planning, they look after the environment, yeah. you know, um, the water quality and yeah. and the you know just the general livability of Melbourne. Mm. So. So getting into that and seeing what the government's doing is um, is just really, really interesting and, and they're, they're doing an awesome job in making mm. our city a better place to live. Have you struck any interesting um, stereotypes around being a female partner or is, it, is that starting to just shift quite a lot now? I think it's shifted yeah. a lot. Um, and, I'm, you know, it's a great time to be a woman yeah. in corporate <laughs> Australia, I have to oh, say. Yeah. But a, a funny thing happened to me last year. Every two years we go off, um, there's a partner's summit somewhere around the world and, and we went to Hong Kong last year and I had a fellow partner approach me and say, so, um, who's your husband here? Thinking that You're I, was, a wife. I was the, You're I was a the wife of a partner because you know, most of them bring their wife. So that, <laughs> and when I said to him, no, no, I'm a partner at PwC, he was the look of shock Aww. horror. Was he mortified at himself though? He was though? completely yeah. and utterly mortified. And we yeah. see each other in the office now and I still laugh when I see yeah, him. because you can hassle him about that forever. He's just, he's just still cringing <laughs> when he sees me. He, yes. he tries really hard to be super nice. But it's like, it's okay, you know. Um, I do wear, you know, dresses, floral yeah. dresses. I don't sort of wear the power suit. No, not anymore. I'm I love not, that about not you. into that. So you've retained your femininity, yeah, my friend. So. Um, but you're still super strong and powerful, and I love that. I think it's. Someone said to me today. I was talking about their leadership team, and she's having some struggles with it. She goes, "God, it's all full of men, and then there's one woman at the top, but she's bloody turned almost, you know, had to wear what they're wearing because otherwise she's not getting taken seriously." And I see that changing a lot in other places now. Like, yeah, it's it's becoming far more human, normal. Yeah, and like the people around me, you know, are really comment on the fact that um, they feel that I'm very approachable yes. and and I genuinely care about them, which mm. is true because you can't I do. Fake that, you know, though. like that's just it's in my nature, mm. and so that's I was surprised that people were surprised that a partner would be like that because mm. you know, th to me, they're our business. So why wouldn't I? want to see them be happy and successful and care about them. That's so. the role modelling we love. Um, so. so tell me about your role in your local council work. How did you get involved? <laughs> tell me, because this is great. I didn't know this about you until I like, Googled and looked you up on LinkedIn. So I've um, been a councillor of the city of Stonington for coming close to 20 years. Um, I've been the mayor four times. <laughs> I'm not a political <gasps> animal. I have no aspirations to go into state or federal politics. Um, so what happened was I just had my first child. He was about three months old and um, there was a planning application next door to where I was living. It was a really horrible one that would take out. It was all along my boundary, windows looking into my backyard, mm. private open space, taking away my son. And if, that means when I say my son, not my child, no, no. but <laughs> the actual, the daylight, the daylight, <laughs> the daylight away. Um, and, uh, and, you know, my mum, I grew up with my mother um, who's an immigrant to Australia. She's Greek and she just was so keen on assimilating into Australia that she got involved in community issues. Mm. So so she used to go to all the council meetings. She joined the local residents group and because um, she was always self-conscious about the fact that English wasn't her first language, mm. even though she spoke English really well. It was mm. just like a, you know, mm. a silly belief on her behalf. But It's a very she, real one, though. It's a very it's a obvious yeah, correct. difference, right? Well, it used to be quite a massive difference in a community if you had a funny accent. Yeah, mm. and she really 
went to great lengths to become Australian mm. and even to the point where a lot of Greek people would say to her, why doesn't your daughter speak Greek at home? And my mum would say, this is Australia, we speak English at home. If I wanted to speak Greece, uh, Greek, there. I'd go back to Greece, <laughs> which was quite funny and would certainly take people back. Plus my dad was German and if we spoke Greek at home, oh, then my dad wouldn't know what we were talking about. So you've got so, German dad and Greek mama. And a Greek mama. It's a wonder I can get out of bed in the morning, to be honest, because they're totally opposite <laughs> people. Um, my dad's this you know, engineer, very thoughtful, quiet. When he speaks, you stop and listen because mm. he's always got something mm. you know mm. powerful to say whereas mm. my mum just screamed all the time mm. um but uh so she would go to all these <laughs> local government issues and she'd be protesting and doing petitions Love and door it. knocking and she'd say she's the activist yeah she was the mm. activist and uh, you know they'd have these council me you know local ca- um, resident meetings in our lounge room and the local councillors would come along and i'd be like rock stars in the house like, oh my god they're a councillor oh my god he's the mayor and you know it was quite funny um and anyway, so this planning application came up. Um, I remember my mum rang the local councillor at the time and said, look, we've got this issue, can you help us? And he just was so rude to her and just said, what's in it for me if I help you? Which just, just oh my I was goodness. absolutely flabbergasted at the response because I always saw councillors as being very distinguished, very proper people that represented their community. So I was you really taken aback. Values like, driven integrity, correct. All the things um, that your family, yeah, you know, and certainly values. the ones I'd met um, met that. You know, they they had enormous integrity. Anyway, I said to her, and my mum was in tears, which made me really angry. You know, no one makes my mum cry. Mm. So I said, mum, don't worry. Next election, I'll run against him. And of course, everyone thought she's just saying that because she's hormonal. <laughs> she's had a baby. She's sleep deprived. But I meant it. And um, so I didn't tell oh, I anybody but one other it. person um, who um, helped me knew a bit about local government because I knew nothing about it apart from, I'm you just going to beat this guy I'm just for making this my guy, mum cry. You know. Well, and in fact, yeah. I didn't want to beat him. I just wanted, I wanted to make sure he didn't get re-elected. So I made sure there was um, yeah, five it. that ran, four men and one female, me, obviously, and I gave my preferences to two of the other guys hoping at least one of them yeah. would get up. And um, lo and behold, I got elected. You got up. And it was funny. I didn't tell my dad that I was running and I put up some posters in Greville Street, Pran, and my dad <laughs> went to the supermarket. <laughs> so he got the shock of his life and he comes home and he says to me, because I live next door to him, as I said earlier, and he said, is there something you want to tell me? I went, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm running for council. And he told me I was an idiot. But um, I got elected and my mum was just so wrapped. Aww. You've no idea. Like for this, this was a dream come true. And the first time I'd ever been in a council chamber was when I had to take the oath. And I'd never – I didn't know what to do. How old were you then? I was 30, 32. Amazing. And the funniest thing was those gentlemen that I was talking about earlier, you know, the, the councillors mm. and the mayors mm. that would mm. come to mm. our home, I got to sit on council with two yeah. of them. So – and one of them's still there now. So it's just been an amazing mm. journey, you know, and he's a very dear friend of mine. Um, so – you know, and, and it's 20 years and I've loved it. And you've so done the mayor four times. So four times, what, yeah. What – tell me, like, what does that – is that a full-time thing? Were you still working? I was working, um, but I'm I'm just one of I'm I can do it and work because I don't stop and I'm super, super organised. Yeah. You know, I can do ten phone calls on a as I'm yeah. driving into work yeah. and, and clear things. Yeah. I've got yeah. a very clear list of what I need yeah. to get done in my head – um, and I focus on those. So you were you were mayor, you were working at IBM. I, I'm trying to put the yep. timeline together. Yep. And how many children did you have? Because you've got three. Three boys, yeah. 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 So one the first time and yep. then I think 
two. Um, then obviously I had my second one. And then I think I did the mayoralty. I did the first time I did it, I think it was a double term. Yeah, it was. And then the next two I had the – I think I might have had a baby in between the so, you know, third and fourth. I can't remember. Track. It all just But happened. either way, it just all blended and it worked. And the dogs. You've and just the, boys, the boys love that. Like they yeah. got some amazing events. My uh, – Middle child, we got his grade six class into the town hall and yeah. they all got to wear the Merrill chains are and they we heavy? did a mock. I did they are super heavy. They look really heavy. They look I wasn't one to wear them. Um because they're locked away because they're actually worth a they're lot worth of a money. Lot of money. <laughs> and I didn't appreciate how much they were worth until it was in Australia. We do citizenship yeah. ceremonies six six times a year and I have to say, as mayor, they're my favourite, yeah, favourite things. Like, they're just the most – the energy in the room is just so beautiful. Well, given that your family came from immigrant Correct. status and that must – I'm getting weepy. Like, of course that's an important um, ceremony for you. And the ritual of it must be beautiful to be part of as well. Yeah. Look, it is. And um, and standing there at the front of the hall – and you usually do about 100 to 120 people okay. at, each, at each citizenship. And just looking at their faces, you know yeah. – Hope. The journeys Joy. that some of them have mm. come on, and this is the culmination of that, is just so powerful. And I've, I've got a prescribed speech that I have to give, mm. and it's a beautiful speech, mm. like a beautiful speech. And if you know, if you want to take the time, look up the speech and have a read of it. Mm. It makes you so proud to be Australian. Um, but there is a section where I can add my own words in. Oh, here we go. And that's when I say to them, you know, that you know, I tell them, and it's true. As a mayor, this is my favourite role mm. is um, conducting citizenship yeah. ceremonies mm. and, and being that authorised officer that um, makes uh, makes them citizens of Australia. And and I also talk about my parents' journey mm. and that, you know, I'm I'm the child of, a, of immigrants yeah. as well. Um, but there's one bit in it um, where we go through each row of the, the you know, and they become citizens and – oh, sorry, they, they take the affirmation or the oath, they sit down. And then right at the end, every the last row sits down um, and then I say to them, and I wait till the the room sort of quietens down a bit, and I say to them, ladies and gentlemen, you are now citizens of Australia. And it's just, I have a tear in my eye because they mm. all jump up and everyone's waving, the audience is cheering. It's just such a beautiful moment because that's the moment of that, you know, that journey becomes real. I've got goosebumps yeah, just talking, talking about, about it. it. I think yep. uh, that struggle uh, aspect where... So many of us have never really experienced anything quite like it. And my mother was an immigrant too um, and came to New Zealand. Then they moved to Australia, had me and my sister and then moved back to New Zealand. Um, and then there was a point where she had to give up her Dutch citizenship in order to get her New Zealand passport, I think. I can't remember how it all worked. And I remember the day that she managed to get her Dutch passport back again. And it was... Uh, such a combination of emotions and, you know, it's, 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 that's it's your identity. Oh, it's, it's, you know, and if you don't, if you've just always, you know, if you haven't gone through an experience, I, I wonder what it would be like if everyone sat through a ceremony like that. They're beautiful. Yeah. And people always come up and comment, mm. you know, what a beautiful ceremony that was. And we did, I know, at Stonington, we did a great job. We had a mm. great singer that would sing the national anthem mm. and um, we are Australian and, mm. And then we had a brass band, and you know, we served you know Australian um, food at the end mm. of it. So, and but just the energy in the room was um, just really, really powerful. How okay? So I forgot to tell you about the chains. Oh. That's right. Yeah, and sorry. anyway, yeah, so yeah. we did a citizenship, and I decided it was Australia Day, which is like the best citizenship sort of day to do it all. And I said to our CEO, 
I think I'll wear the chains today. Can you get them? And he just went, went grey because, you know, it's, they're all locked away in a safe and you actually need a security guard to wow. walk around with you when you wear them. But anyway, um, so I did wear them and citizenship ceremonies can go for like nearly two hours. <laughs> you oh were doing gosh. weight resistance And training. <laughs> my neck by the end of it was just, yeah, so. They didn't come with a health warning. So I didn't ask for them again after that. Yeah, yeah. I, they look really heavy. Yeah. Um, now, we just lightly touched on how you run your days because three kids, animals, multiple hat wearing. What are, what are some of the things that allows you to switch off towards the end? of the, How do you sleep? Do you sleep? Oh, everyone asked me. If I had a dollar for that, I reckon I'd pay my mortgage off. I'd sleep heaps, yeah, actually. Um, and I love my nana naps on the weekends. Mm. That's what they're, they're a really, really special time for me. Um, in the afternoons, I sort of grab a cat and or the dash hound mm-hmm. and have a bit of a snuggle. <laughs> the Bernese Mountain Dog usually jumps on all of us and keeps us company. But um, I'm I'm really clear on what I need to do. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. I've you know I see people wander around during the day and they're not clear on what they're doing or what they need to achieve. And I'm not saying about just being a robot going, I've got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. One thing I did many years ago, which was a really great exercise was I thought about well, what's important to me in my life and, and what would I want to achieve and sort of I'd made up this master list of you know my time on earth what do I want to do um, and there are a few things that have dropped off that list but the majority of them are still valid to this mm. day so I was sort of on the money about you know who I was and what values I had um, and you know for example one of them was I really want to do a PhD one day mm. And I'll use that as an example in the scenario. So um, so every year, you know, when I was sort of writing my New Year's resolutions, I'd sort of look at, well, what am I going to try and achieve on that list? And, um, I mean, some of them happened by default. You know, I, had, I got married, I had my children, you know, and so forth. Um, bought property and things like that. But, um, you know, I'd, so I'd identify sort of what are my goals for this year? And I don't necessarily always achieve all my goals for the year, but at least it's something that's front of mind. And then every week every Sunday I look at my goals for the year and I think about what am I going to do for any of those goals to move it one step forward Mm. to achieving them Um, and if you break it down you you'd be surprised by one knowing what your goals are inadvertently subconsciously you make decisions that end up achieving those goals and Harvard have done studies on Mm. this and proven it that it's successful but it also you're on a pathway it's Mm. like if you're going to go to Queensland, you're going to you're going to have a map. You're going to work out your destination. You're not just going to get in your car and drive and say, "I'm going to get to Queensland." You know, think think it through, but leave enough flexibility to let life take you on a journey. Um, so, like with my with my PhD, well, you can't do a PhD unless you've got a master's. So I um, right. So went off. Um, I'm actually on my second master's, but I love I do love to learn um, and. <laughs> So I, I'll, Amazing. So the goal on my list now for the next couple of months is to have a look at the course handbook, look at what subjects I want to do next year, how do they fit in my work timetable, and um, and then the next one will be to register for them when they open up. Mm. So, and that's just that next step, mm. and then I'm ready to take. You know, once I get the, I go and enrol in the subject, do it next year, and then the next thing eventually will be on my to do list will be do my assignments or exam or whatever. Yeah, sure. So bite so, by bite. And not before you know it, it yeah. like I'm halfway through a law masters. Yeah. So, and it's been great. Yeah, but you're not putting any pressure on yourself of a time frame to have to finish it by. Nope, it's been two years um, and 
I'm I'm actually being selective about what subjects I yeah. do and sometimes they're not offered in a year. So, like, I've deferred this semester because there's no subjects that I'm going to get value well from. Well done. So, yeah, I am being selective. And you'll find the older you get... Yeah. ...as they are, there's less... ...there's less shit, excuse yeah. me, like no, French no, that you're no, going to take on. on this podcast. I have to put the um, warning on the Apple thing. It's like... ...because all my... ...all my people swear <laughs> on this. It's amazing. Um, and I think that uh, is such a gold nugget... ...because you go, well... Um, ...it's more about the journey... ...than necessarily smashing it out in a year... ...to be able to go, I did it in this time frame. And, and you're actually learning... Um, in a very um, focused and, um, yeah, I'm just trying to think of the right word, my brain's gone to sleep, instead of just doing it to get the tick in the box. Get value. Like one of my dreams was always to be, and it was on, this was on my, my goals, mm. those sort of life goals, was to be a really good negotiator. Oh, cool. I just, I love, why if you've ever seen a really good negotiator, oh, I don't, I don't even know why, but That's the so reason I important. went and did commercial law, um, my commercial law master's, is yeah. that negotiation is and a subject women are in it. not particularly great at it no. as a whole. Yeah. And, you know, I did the subject last semester, I got first class honours, so I was wow. over the moon because um, we had the head of Harvard. One of the negotiation heads wow. of Harvard come out. And just the exercises that we did were just so amazing. I, st- I still think about them now, like what I learnt out of them. And that and is real learning. And it was real yeah. learning. And even, you know, when you negotiate with someone, actually plan for the negotiation. Like plan how you're going to negotiate. What are the time frames? Mm. How are you going to communicate? Who's going to be in the room? And these and we we did negotiations without planning for them and we did them with planning. So now I can tell you you need to plan for a negotiation yeah. before you do them. Oh yeah. Things I'd never have thought of before. Yeah. Um and the stories she shared with us, you know, about because she's also a professional negotiator and she's done a lot of negotiations oh, in the Middle East and mm. you know, and things that have backfired mm. um in negotiations. So it's just so it might be a master's, but for me it's just been a great learning. So again, I see so many things about you that shows me your growth mindset again around this, this learning quest that it's not about the outcome, it's actually about the understanding and the um, the doors that it's opening to the next thing that you then can go and look at rather than it being so that you can show someone that you've ticked this thing off the yeah. list. And so you, got, I don't get a sense from you you're doing these goals to be able to at the end of your life go, see, I did the list. Do you know, I get really frustrated when people and say to me, oh, you're just an overachiever. Oh. And that really, really bothered me because yeah. I thought, am I? Yeah. Like I did some souls. Am I, am I doing this? Am I trying to prove a point to somebody? Why, you know, why am I going and investing all this time to do a law master? It's not like I'm going to go off and do law, really. And then I realised, no, exactly what you said. I really enjoy doing this. Yeah. This is something I get a lot out of. And... You know, working really hard and submitting an assignment and then getting a great result back was just, it made my week. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, and one of them was one of, I did corporate governance soon after, and, you know, my teacher, and I remember sitting in the class and there's barristers in there, you know, and I'm the dumb person in the room. <laughs> and, um, you know, and they're going, oh, you know, if you do your assignment, it's really good, you can get it published. I'm thinking, oh my God, imagine that. If my, and lo and behold, my lecturer asked if he could publish my assignment on corporate governance where I studied the um I did a research assignment on the professional educational um qualifications of the board members of the top 100 ASX <gasps> listed board oh, I want to read that and compared it to what the research is saying about you know yeah. do we have the right skills and experience on our boards to effectively govern them so do, do we 
pretty, we're pretty good. We're good. We're getting a lot better, oh. correct. But it, I could only compare it against um, standards and poor data no. because it's all American research. So what I actually did, no one had done before. No, because we don't have Australian standards. And I thought, how insight. obvious could that be? But oh. he said, again, me thinking it's obvious. And she said, well, actually not. So, you so look, that's really exciting. You look at things completely uniquely from the average – and also I feel like you're – uh, way you frame the problem to get to the solution is very unique as well. Yeah, and that's okay. the way you see different. You just see it in a human way, but with a with the process brain. It's really cool. Yeah, thank you. I love it. Oh my god, I keep talking about it forever. Um, but tell me about um, like how how what support do you have with um, running your life? Because if you're a partner, what time do you have to be here? How does it work? Doesn't matter. About no. what time? Great. You know, and I, I used to have people when I was um, at IBM, I, I was a, sort of a third level manager, I had about 200 people and so I'd have to do, I'd be the person that at the end of year performance reviews, if anyone wasn't happy, it all got escalated up to me. And I'd say, but, I, you know, my utilisation was 100% and, and I worked really hard and I was here every day and it's like, but that's not the measurement. The mm. measurement is your output. Mm. You know, what have you actually achieved? Yeah. Um, so, and that's what it is at PwC. It's not about the hours, it's how effective you've been in achieving what we need to achieve as an organisation. So, so, is that measuring impact? It's really impact. Yeah. Um, and and uh, outcomes. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, we've got measures as an organisation. Mm. So, they'll, you know, revenue will be looked at. Sure. Um, we measure the happiness of the team, what our, we call our team mojo. Um, we look at the utilisation of the team members. Mm -hmm. So it's not about whether I'm in the office every day. I could be working 18 hours a day and, and have really poor results in mm. all of that. And if I'm, if I'm exhibiting the wrong behaviours where I'm not bringing other partners in or bringing the right people yeah. in yep. to, you know, to be the right people on a deal, because sometimes I'll see a deal and I could easily grab it and say, oh, I'm going to work on that. But I'm not the right person. There's better people in our firm. So I've got to let it go mm. and give it to the right person to deliver. That can be hard. Yeah. Um, but it's also That's the right again outcome. again needing really high levels of self-awareness. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And so how do you practice your self-awareness? So I, I, I heard about the Sunday goal setting and thinking and, like, and you did it when you were in your early 20s to really think about who am I. How, how often do you go there? I'm doing it more and more mm. now as I'm – because I'm going to be, you know, 50 soon. Shut up. So you sit there and you go, wow, where did the time 50. go? That little baby I talked about yeah. that, um, you know, when I joined council, you know, I had this – just had a baby. He's 18 tomorrow and it's like, oh, my gosh. Congratulations, thank Mama. You, thank you. <gasps> um, so – Wow. Yeah. It's – yeah. It's – What's he going to go off and do now? He says he wants to be a carpenter. He's got to get out of bed at five o'clock every morning. Good luck. <laughs> Why do you have to get out of bed at five a.m. to be oh, a carpenter? Because you've all got to you've got to be out on site by six or seven, oh, and you've got to get there, and you're driving all over Melbourne. So anyway, that's what he wants to do. He wants to use his hands and build stuff. Mm. I like that. But I think it's really important. Um, people tend to lose themselves in their work, in their marriages, as mothers. It's really important. I've got a number of my girlfriends now who've done the, you know, the typical path, getting married, you know. The letter. Yeah. Yep. yep. And, they're, and they're miserable because they've lost touch with who they are. Mm. Um, and I, I remember reading a book and it said, think about what makes you happy. And I just had this cold rush through my bones because I'm like, oh, my gosh, what is I, it? I'm not w sure. What actually, really, yeah. what makes me happy? And it, it took me... 
ages, I'd sort of walk around thinking, what makes me happy? And we're smart women, right? Right, like We know we're not that, dim, but really I, I found that really hard to answer too. Yeah, yeah. and I, I started and I sort of wiped out my whiteboard and right, I'm going to write it on the whiteboard mm. as I think of them. And one of them, the first one that came to my mind, and it sounds so silly, but it, it was true. I love having a really clean, organised house with fresh flowers, the, um, the animals are happy, the dishes are done, there's nothing in the ironing basket, the floors are mopped and vacuumed. That makes me really, really happy. Mm. Um, and just having, you know, candles burning and in incense, uh, sorry, yeah. you know, essential oil burners yeah. and some background music, I love that. That's your sanctuary. Yeah, it, it's yeah. just really it's where you recharge. So and so, if that's in order, you can actually switch off for a bit then too. Correct. Mm. And um, I love animals. So one of my other things that makes me really yeah. happy is um, is I sometimes love a nana nap, and I've got one cat that just loves to come and snuggle, snuggle. in with me. So I grab him, and we have a snooze for a couple of hours, and that's a really special mm. time for me during the week. I mean, it's you know I'm just having things. a snooze with my cat, but it really means a lot to me. So. So those little things. And, of course, I love getting on the scales and seeing that I've lost a bit of weight. <laughs> I need to put it back on a couple of days later. But <laughs> I realise that that makes me really happy for a day or two until I go and eat. I mean, that's a whole other podcast about why <laughs> I haven't stood so. on the scales. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I always ask this question and you've answered it anyway, which is around what piece of advice you'd give someone who's in their early 30s. And they're really wrestling with this, you know, as, as women especially – how do I do it all? Because I want to have the career. I still want to travel. Um, I want to explore this part about my interest. Um, but I also want to have kids. Well, you can. Yeah. Like, there's no reason why you can't. I mean, you could move. I mean, look, if you want to grow in your career, take on a, a, a an overseas role. Mm. Um, I mean, in fact, there are a number of large firms that unless you've taken an overseas secondment, they won't make your partner. Mm. So um, so it sort of goes hand in hand. And I, I see even people here at PwC who will say, right, I will take a global assignment, take move up to the next level because they need people like me there. Mm. Um, and straight away, so there's career and travel rolled into that they get a new experience and a new place to live um and you know with family you can still have family i mean the, the world's moved on you've got men now can have 18 weeks and i think oh god that would have been fantastic mm. when i had my three boys is that what it is choice it's 18 weeks yeah. yep um now for and it's great that all of a sudden these men disappear and it's like oh yeah because they've gone on paternity leave and yeah. which is just so fantastic to see that so look you, you can have it all but my advice to, to people is don't do it just because you have to do it. Do it because you want to do it. Like and really I think that is the most important. And, and don't be afraid to say – because I think when, when you've made that call and then someone's like, oh, when you, you know, why haven't you done this yet? It's like, well, I've just chosen not to. And that's okay. Yeah, like I remember someone used to – a family member would say, so why aren't you married yet? And I'd say, oh, just lucky, I guess. Yeah. And they just wouldn't know what to say. <laughs> that's a great one. That I like that. So why haven't you had this yet? Oh, just lucky, I guess. Yeah, just lucky, I guess. So that's sort uh, of one way and to And I know a lot of them. people poke around at some of these things because they're, one, curious and genuinely interested in, and they think that that latter track is the, the how you become happy because that's what they believe and what they've done. But I – I, yeah, I just I love having those little quips up my sleeve like that one, just to bat them off a bit. 
But look, you know, climbing the ladder, yeah, like you said, doesn't guarantee success. It's very stressful. It can mm. be very lonely. Um, and more importantly, I say to people, think about who you want to go on that journey with. Mm. Take the time to find the right partner because picking the wrong partner can be, you know, a disaster. It can end up with, you know, children living half with you and half with, you know, like, and those things are not pleasant for anybody. So... Don't just focus on those three areas. Think about who's going to be on that journey and are they right, the right person who's going yep. to encourage and support you on your journey and believe in you. I think we'll end it there because that is another gold nugget. Um, Melina, thank you so much for My pleasure, speaking. Rebeen, I feel anytime. like we could do this on a whole other range of subjects in the future and have a wonderful cup holiday. You mean grand final oh, holiday? grand final. Yeah. My God, I'm months ahead of myself. <laughs> I'm still getting used to all these Melbourne school, um, sporting public events. I can talk about that. No worries. Thanks See you for being. Bye.